The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Hello, and welcome to the show. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. In this show, we have been focusing on how you survive when you take on larger and larger roles and responsibilities, particularly when you get yourself out of your technical expertise where you know what to do and how to do it, and suddenly you're thrust in a role where people underneath you actually know more of the details than you can ever know. Now, one of the acid tests when you are thrown into a larger and larger role, in fact, one of the things we worry a lot when we're putting people into significant roles is whether or not you can lead through a crisis. And that's the focus of our show today. Um, We're going to be talking with Peter Wright, who has been through an interesting series of experiences and a lot of challenging situations. In fact, sometimes I think challenges follow him. But I'm going to steal a favorite line from Peter his favorite interview question is to ask, how do you describe yourself in 30 seconds? So, Peter, how do you describe yourself to us in 30 seconds? Um, well, um, I'm a British national. Um, I was born into a military family um, and therefore have led a somewhat eclectic life. My father was responsible for running hospitals for the British Army. Uh, so I've actually ended up living in 10 different countries. Um, preordained from birth by my father that as the eldest of his three sons, I would follow him into the military. So I've had three careers, uh, the first 12 years as an army officer in the British Army, then 28 years in corporate life, and then more latterly, um, two years uh, running my own consultancy. I now reside back in the UK, and when I'm not working, um, I collect books and I follow sport. <laughs> Fabulous. All right, so just to fill in a couple of things, though, I want to start with talking about your Army experience. As we've talked, I've been very intrigued by um, both your training as well as the kind of tours of duty that you had in the British military. So active duty, under fire, literally, many, many, many times or several times. And so my first question to you is when you are leading a group of soldiers and the bullets are flying, how do you know anybody's ever going to follow you? Great question. Uh, I mean, I guess essentially you don't. Um, And strangely enough, throughout all the training that you do, and uh, in the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, that's a year long. Um, The one thing that's most difficult to simulate is courage. 
So uh, until it actually happens to you, you don't know for certain. But I think essentially you can't inspire confidence in others unless you're confident yourself. Um, and that confidence comes from a knowledge in military context of modern weaponry, organizations, tactics, military strategy, and simply the hundreds of hours you put into practice uh, in terms of the theory that you've been taught. So, you know, you plan soundly, you lead resolutely. Um, I think the other thing, quite honestly, is you have to become overseas human being. You have to be able to relate to your soldiers. Uh, they will never question the fact that you are the officer. You know, indeed, you wear the rank on your shoulder. Um, but beyond that, you need to have them believe that there is a sense of humanity in you. Um, there's a sense of humility in you, which is not a word often you hear in leadership. Um, on the day I was commissioned, uh, the man responsible for looking after me in the year that I was at Sandhurst took me aside. Uh, and he said, basically, well done, sir. You've done extremely well. The government has just spent a lot of money on you. But having been a soldier for 22 years, let me just tell you two simple things. First of all, never ask your soldiers to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. And secondly, in your case, you're an infantry officer, and infantry soldiers are of no use if they can't march. So every night, I'd like you to remember to take, ask your soldiers to take their shoes off and their socks off, inspect their feet personally, and make sure they can march the next day. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, and if you think that's below you, you're in the wrong business. It's interesting, this blend of both the technical training, the preparation, the drills, the theory, the what you should do in these situations, and the simulation of all of that, in combination with two things you said, one is courage and the other one is humility. Um, and I get the sense of humility, that humility comes from a genuine caring of and a willing to connect with the people that you're leading. Say a few words about courage, and in particular, here you are, a young officer, you've got a group of people behind you, bullets start flying. Where do you get your courage? Um, I think courage comes, as I've said once before, in terms of being confident in what you're doing. But courage is also, I think, um, a moral activity. I mean, unlike the sort of aptitude that can, you can be blessed with in terms of uh, playing sport, uh, more, uh, courage is a simple choice, uh, usually of two things. Uh, you learn from experience, um, but it requires integrity. It requires a belief uh, in what you're doing, um, and it requires you to have the confidence to show your soldiers that you will do whatever they will do. On that premise alone, uh, I think most soldiers will follow you. Um, for those who are cinema buffs, there is a great film called Black Hawk Down, and towards the end of it, there's an actor called Eric Banner who plays a role, and he's trying to explain this. And um, the way he explains it is to say, when I go home, I have great difficulty explaining to civilians what this is about. I'm not a war junkie. I'm not a war hero. This is simply about the man on my left and the man on my right, and it's no more difficult than that. Um, and I think that sense of camaraderie, I mean, after all, you know, most armies these days are volunteer armies, so these are ordinary citizens, but who put themselves in the line of fire for the sake of their country. Um, but they do it for the sake of the person on their left and the person on their right. The military understands that very seldom 
would you ever have a situation where a military outcome is a decisive outcome? The army these days understands that it's an instrument of the government and ultimately it's buying time for a political solution. So soldiers don't tend to overcomplicate these things. Um, they're there to do a job. They understand that job. They understand it in very simple terms. And as long as I think they're led with confidence, they're able to relate to the job that's expected of them. All right. So it's for those of us who've never had any military training in the world, I think we get fascinated in the news stories that we hear and in the movies we watch about people who seem to do fairly heroic things in the moment, um, things I imagine most would, would never consciously say, I'm going to go out and do that. In your senses, you do those heroic acts because of your commitment to the people on your right and to your left, which is about a commitment to the team, not necessarily to the leader. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, there's a degree of black humor in the military that um, one of the problems with winning winning medals for gallantry is about 80% of them get won posthumously. So, uh, you know, army officers often discuss the very fine line between courage and stupidity. Uh, But at the end of the day, going back to what I said earlier, you, you, you can never be in a situation where you're asking your soldiers to do something you're not willing to do. So, you know, there are never hopeless situations. There are only hopeless men. Um, and whatever situation you are in, you fall back on all of that experience that you've gleaned over the years, and you trust to that because that's why, that's why you were taught it in the first place. So... The commitment, um, we're going to turn in a few minutes to talk about the commitment in more normal life, not just in the military. But what do you think builds that commitment among a group of soldiers working together? I mean, is it the leader or is it something else that happens? Um, I think undoubtedly leadership. I think trusted each other. I think living with each other. Um, I have this theory that leadership is sometimes overplayed. I mean, if I can almost as a segue give you a civilian example, many, many years after I left the military, uh, I was in a company that was in its fifth year of employee engagement. So you're at that kind of tipping point where it's either going to carry on improving or it's going to plateau and possibly go in the wrong direction. And uh, there were four divisions in the company, and the overall scores for both participation and uh, people being happy with the company were hovering. Um, it actually went up collectively by 1%, but that, that hid the reality of it, which was that basically one of the four divisions had improved by 9%, which if you're a mathematician, you can work out what it meant for the other three. When that became obvious, the guy running that particular division was asked to actually come and present to the board because clearly the board felt that he was doing something remarkable uh, to to basically swim against the tide and create that kind of improvement. And when he turned up at the board meeting, he said, I basically did two things. I worked out that with a bit of effort on my part, I could actually get around all 20,000 employees for whom I was responsible four times a year and do four town halls, which had the advantage to them of being able to hear me and for me to hear them. So there was no question of me not hearing what the questions were. Um, And then the second thing I did, he said, was I told him the same thing in all four quarters of that year. Because what I realized was that 
every time we sit and talk to our employees in big businesses, we tend to sell them something else. Um, so there's no kind of continuity. At the end of the presentation, the board, the head of the board said, that's very interesting. Now please tell us what it was you did to make the score go up 9%. Uh, and he said, that's it. Um, I can tell you the story a second and a third time, but that's it. And, you know, for me, in a non-military context, um, you know, for those who've been in that situation, it's very easy to relate to. But sometimes people are looking for magical solutions that are not there. You remind me of Lou Gerstner's story in taking over IBM, and his comment was, you know, for two years he had the exact same message because it takes two years for it to get grounded into an organization. And so every town hall, every meeting, every email, every public presentation, I'm going to give you the same message for two years. After two years, I can change my message. has an interesting implication for how we currently deliver town halls in most companies. Um, Come back just one last minute before we take a break and talk to me again about the commitment. How do you get that team bond together? So you've said... There is some common training. There is, you're spending a lot of time together, so you're going to get to know each other pretty well. Um, not so much that um, the, leader, the leadership has their own role, but that isn't the core component. Anything else that makes that team feel joined, committed, sticking it out for the person on the right and the person on the left? Um, well, I think certainly a, a common purpose. Um, that leads down an interesting route as well, because I do think organizations don't always understand that their organization needs to be fit for purpose. I think if you talk to people in the middle ranks of corporations, it's very obvious to them when something is out of sync. Um, And it's important at the top, if you're going to get commitment down through the organization, that they understand that the business is fit for purpose, that there is something that they can sign up for that is greater than their individual needs, uh, something that they can believe in. And I think that, you know, the commitment derives from that. I think clearly some teams in the theory of team organization work better than others. Uh, But in large organizations under tremendous stress, I've seen um, organizations do remarkable things in situations where you probably wouldn't automatically recognize that group of people as a team in the classic sense of uh, how you develop teams. So I think it's about common purpose. I think it's about belief. I think it's about the organization being fit for purpose and something that the people, the employees, can can identify in. Interesting. A lot of the things that we have said about what makes for effective teams throughout years of writing on team development, but now it's a matter of putting in practice in a way that people actually feel it on the ground. I have one last question for you, Peter, before we take a break, and that is the sense of calm. I know in the middle of a crisis, particularly when bullets are flying, one of the most important things that you do is stay calm. What's your advice to how to stay calm when literally bullets are flying over your head? Um. I don't know that you're necessarily calm. You're probably just calmer. Um, but, I, I mean, I guess the answer is that you go back to what I said earlier. You, you trust in the training that you've done. You trust in um, knowing that you're doing the right thing, and you trust that the soldiers you're commanding will, will go with you. Um, I think uh, any form of panic or uncertainty in any 
form of organization in any situation probably undoes teams and organizations faster than anything that I've witnessed in over 30 years. So I'm not saying it's easy, and some people have a character which lends itself maybe to staying calm better than others, but you normally have a little bit more time than you think you do. Uh, the most important thing is to think through what it is you're going to do before you do it. Okay, fair enough. All right, so this is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. I've been talking with Peter Wright. We've been talking about his experience in the British military and in particular how he leads through a moment of a crisis. In my words, when bullets are flying, how do you get other people to follow you? How do you build a team so that they're joined up and connected and supporting each other through this process? When we come back from break, we're going to continue to talk with Peter about his experiences, but this time we're going to turn to his corporate life. And in particular, I want to talk about his time at BP and the Texas City oil refinery explosion. How do you survive that? comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. With me today is Peter Wright. Peter has a very interesting background. We've just been talking about his military experience and how you lead a group of people through the fire. I want to focus now on his corporate experience, so the last 28 years, in a variety of companies, including places like Unilever, Estee Lauder, BP, AIG, to name a few, and in senior HR roles. And in particularly, Peter, let's start with one of the more dramatic events. So you have signed a contract to come in as a lead HR person in BP. 
between the time that you sign the contract and the time that you actually join the company, the Texas City oil refinery blows up, literally killing 50 people. So my first question is, does trouble just follow you around the world? Um, it, it has on occasions appeared a little bit like that. Um, and in fact, I think ironically enough, when one gets a reputation for that, uh, it is strange how um, that does appear to happen. Um, my mother in her later years used to describe the fact that when my father ran hospitals, his specialism was turning around hospitals that were not performing well. And surprise, surprise, the British Army's reward for doing that well is they give you another non-performing hospital. So um, I think, uh, as is often the case with mother's wisdom, it was very much a question of, you know, like father, like son. Right. So you survive the crisis, you get some stuff done, let's give you another crisis and see if you can survive that one. Okay, so your time at BP, you've given a lot of praise for um, particular leaders at the time at BP and the way they handled the crisis. Tell us a little bit about what happened in the aftermath of the Texas oil refinery and why did you think the leadership in this particular case was so good? Um, well, just to put it into context, and for those who don't know about this, this had, this had occurred in March of 2005, as you said, killed 15 people, injured more than 170. Um, and I think at the time, I'm right in saying the Texas City oil refinery was the second largest oil refinery in the United States. So this is a, a large-scale industrial accident. Um, during the interview process, what I'd been asked to do was to come in um, and be the head of HR for the refining and marketing division, which was already facing a significant business challenge. Um, those who are devotees of following British industry will know that BP had grown at an extraordinary rate. Um, it had merged with Amoco in 98. It had bought Arco in 99, acquired Burma Cashel in 2000, acquired Aral in 2001, and then it created the TNK BP Russian joint venture. So by, by any measure, uh, this was a business that had grown at extraordinary speed. Um, and that whilst the mergers and acquisitions process had, had run literally like clockwork, um, one can imagine now, five years on, you're trying to absorb all of those businesses and truly integrate them and understand what the new BP is going to look like. So that was actually the lure, if you like. By the time I arrived, the immediacy uh, of needing to uh, respond to Texas City, so flying out the senior people, obviously showing uh, you know care and consideration for those immediately affected, that was all actually pretty much in train. Um, what did, however, happen was that the, um, the Chemical Safety Board in the United States um, started an investigation. They, in turn, recommended that... BP commissioner an independent investigation, which was subsequently headed up by James Baker, the former Secretary of State. Um, and then, obviously, in addition to that, there were concerns about um, what the Department of Justice would do as well. So what you now have is a sort of a very large-scale, fast-moving business challenge overlaid um, by, um, you know, what one can only describe as a, as a one-off incident. And I think, you know, the balance here was about how do, you, how do you commit to and fulfill the change that you're already having to do and at the same time deal with three 
very large external agencies um, who are going to have a profound effect on what it is that you do. Um, and I think, you know, one of the lessons one comes away from that with is, as you've hinted at, you know, leadership. I mean, the guy in charge of refining and marketing at the time, John Manzoni, uh, had spent his whole life in BP. So, uh, once again, back to this theme of many, many years of growing up, understanding the industry, um, highly intelligent, um, tough on his people, but always fair, uh, believed to, you know, um, displayed integrity, quick to praise, um, genuinely wanted to hear what his people said to him, um, and a very, very well-respected man. Um, but what he realized was clearly, you know, you can't do with something that on your own. And I think the skill uh, was how he had built a team of about 15 to 20 people around him, of which I was one of the last pieces in the jigsaw. Um, and this balancing act between stay true to what you need to do from a business perspective, um, manage the external agencies, in this case the Chemical Safety Board, the Independent Investigatory Board, and the Department of Justice, and at the same time, uh, you know, understand that for all that, yes, you are in a crisis, the business still has to run. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, I've learned in later life about crises, uh, both military and non-military, is this phrase that it's all right to win the war, but you need to win the peace as well. Um, and, uh, you know, after BP with immaculate timing, I went into AIG. Um, and one of the things about AIG was for all of the, once again, the immediacy of what we had to do with, one of the critical things that was decided early on was that if we were going to sell all the businesses or IPO them, they had to be in good order for that to happen. Um, it's easy sometimes to lose, I think, sight of the immediacy of the crisis and forget the fact that the business itself still has to run. Okay, so you've got keeping the business running. You have, in effect, a sort of new team, at least that there's a couple new players. You're one of them to manage and integrate. You have a leader who's fairly inspirational, and you've got all these external constituencies that you've got to deal with. Um, uh, My question is, how back to a theme from last week's show, how willing was Manzoni to say, I don't have the answers, what do we need to do here? Was he open to that kind of exchange? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he probably worked harder and put in more hours than anybody, but he was one of the people uh, who often quoted a phrase that I'd heard in previous life from somebody else, which is there's a reason why the good Lord gives you two two ears and one mouth, it's because you're meant to listen twice as much as you speak. And you don't learn a great deal by listening to yourself speaking. Um, And, you know, whilst at one level that can sound almost trite, uh, he truly did believe that. Um, He said there's not much point in me going out and hiring this team um, if, if I'm the one that believes I'm, you know, the only one that has all the answers. And I would say one other unique thing about this, and I know uh, this is something that's coming back into vogue in terms of conversation. That team was actually a very diverse team, both in terms of creed, nationality, uh, gender, and the like. And one of the things that was very interesting about it was a sense of vulnerability. So in other words, a sense 
that, once again, it's a word you don't necessarily hear very often in leadership, but a sense that we weren't perfect. We were doing our best. Uh, we were in daily contact with the external agencies, um, but we were open to ideas. And I think, you know, one of the things in the concept of diversity and inclusion that needs to be thinking about, thought about in teams is this concept of vulnerability. Once you believe you are invulnerable as a team, you are likely to be caught out. You're likely to make mistakes. You're likely to be taken out from left field. Um, and that, you know, was not necessarily the case in every crisis I dealt with. But one of the features of that, and I, and I would give John credit for it, is he was very aware of the need for the team uh, to be a blended team, for it to come from diverse backgrounds with diverse opinions, and for each of those people to have a right to, to have their say. So this wasn't a question of a team which then had to toe the party line. It was a team where he wanted to hear different views and different opinions. And if it got heated occasionally, then that was fine. But people were encouraged to have their say. So very interesting. We have this notion of courage. We have this notion of preparation of some training so that you know technically kind of how things should go. We have the notion of um, vulnerability and humility, the willingness to admit what you don't know and to allow a broad range of perspectives to enter in. And we have this notion of the team commitment. So let me go back to this corporate team at BP under Manzoni. Is there anything that happened on that team that helped people pull together so that the different voices, the diversity, was actually well represented in the room? Yes. Um, And, I I mean, I guess, you know, it was about two things, really. One, adversity. Um, The capacity of human beings in my time has never ceased to amaze me in terms of what they would do when the going gets tough. Um, but I think also um, what he was able to do was genuinely get people to believe that uh, everyone could have a say. So to use stereotypical titles, I guess, um, you know, if you describe the middle group in your business as managers, then you should not be surprised that they will behave as managers. And at the risk of being overly simplistic, they will sit and wait for instruction. If you describe them as leaders, which is what he did, then they behave in a completely different way. Now, they're the same people. Uh, you know, the circumstances are just as difficult and adversarial, but now all of a sudden, People genuinely believe they can make a difference. Um, And therefore, it wasn't just about that 15 to 20. It was about a belief he instilled in the organization that we weren't going through the best of times, but uh, that we could display the best we had in us. Um, And I think part of the BP that came out of it at the other end was largely due to this um, change in the way in which we believed about ourselves. Okay, so there's something in ways of the leader treats everybody else, speaks to everybody, expects of everybody that encourages people to step up their game. Um, And crisis helps, but I don't want to get focused on the fact that we just have to have a crisis in order to be an effective leader. But I like this notion of treating people like leaders. Very interesting idea. Okay, this is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. We've been talking with Peter Wright. We're going to take a break at this moment, and when we come back, I want to talk about Peter's experience and perspective of what the best leaders do in a uh, thing he calls devolved leadership. So we will be right back in just a moment. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Peter Wright. We've had a fascinating discussion thus far, partly about Peter's military experience in active duty and leading a group of people through fire. And then just recently, we've been talking about his corporate experience, particularly in times of crisis. There have been a series of crises in Peter's career, as you can well imagine. What I want to do in this block is to focus on his perspective of what leaders should do not necessarily to survive the crisis, but to get their organization fit for purpose should the inevitable happen. So, Peter, you talk a lot about um, the role of devolved leadership. Explain to us what you mean by that. Um, I think uh, devolved leadership, in my mind, arises from uh, almost a knee-jerk reaction to what I otherwise describe as hierarchical leadership. I think in, in industry... We're very good at labeling things, and I think some 25 years ago or so, we started defining leadership around the concept of if you weren't visioning or missioning or at the very least being involved in the strategy of the organization, then somehow you couldn't be a leader. And I think what's followed from that is this idea that most organizations, if they don't have a cult leader in their own right, they certainly will have a top 100 or top 150. Uh, you know, and over the years, I've questioned whether or not you really have a 150 leaders or you just have a group of the most senior 150 people. And I think there's a distinct difference between those two. So the idea that in a, in a modern, fast-moving organization, everything that you need to take into consideration for leadership purposes somehow comes in, filters to the top of the organization, is discussed amongst this group, and the wisdom is distilled back down through the organization uh, is just not realistic. And frankly, in my own view, I don't think it's been realistic for a long time. The problem, of course, is that then you have to redefine leadership. And um, maybe the best way I can tell it is use a story. Uh, back in the early 90s, I was staying in a hotel in the Midwest, had the pleasure of meeting a guy who was actually fairly new to the hotel industry, but he'd worked out two very simple things. One was that hotels were 24-7, 365 days of the year, 
And although he was a general manager of the hotel, he had no intention of staying in the hotel for that period of time. So he had to devolve leadership. And then the second one was that things in hotels tend to happen in a hurry. So people are in a hurry to check in, they're in a hurry to check out, or they change their plans at very short notice. And therefore, with that in mind, even if he had been willing to be available, uh, they, they couldn't have factored in the time it would have taken to get hold of him if he needed to make every decision. So he made, the, he made every one of his uh, people responsible by giving them, in this case, an amount of money that they were able to spend. They didn't have to refer to anyone, but if they had to spend money to resolve a problem, they were entitled to do that. They were also entitled, incidentally, to spend more than that if they had to, but then they'd have to justify that. Um, and, you know, for me, that model isn't necessarily replicable in every business, but it, it instills two things. One, it sends a message that all the way down to the lowest level, I'm redefining leadership and I'd like you to act with initiative. And secondly, and most importantly, I'm giving you the tools to do that. Um, you know, so one of the other things about devolved leadership, I think, is we've become extraordinarily good at giving people uh, assessments. We put them through 360 degrees. We put them through psychometric assessments and so on. Um, and that's become very sophisticated. What we're not necessarily good at is uh, what in the hotel version would be giving them the money to do something about it. So we're, we've become increasingly uh, gifted at finding out what the issue is, not necessarily as gifted in giving those people the opportunity to then go away and do something about the, the findings. Um, and, and, you know, change in leadership for me is a, is a very personal thing. Um, I'll just recount a very short story. Um, when I was in charge of a business which was being sold to another company, very understandably, in the town hall meeting, people were worried about the strategy and the takeover and the handover and all of that. And about an hour into the meeting, a lady stood up and she said, could, could I ask a question? Um, is the company that's going to take over our company going to carry on subsidizing the car parking? And there were a few titters in the audience and, uh, you know, you're the kind of response you would imagine. At the end of it, um, we got hold of the lady and said we didn't know the answer, but we'd find out. And when I checked back on her boss, it turned out that she was a single mother with three small children. And it just so happened that parking in this town was very expensive. So literally, uh, whether or not parking was subsidized or not would make a difference to whether she stayed in the job. It also turned out, incidentally, she was the best person in accounts payable that we had. And, and I tell that story only in as much as, particularly with devolved leadership, it's sometimes easy to forget that at the end of the day, for all of the strategy and the theory around leadership, getting people to change is a very personal experience. So it's about, you know, people often talk about, I want my team to step up, but it is giving them the room to step into. I think I heard that from you, but you're also back to where you started on today's show, which is talking about the connectedness to the people you're leading, understanding what matters to them and the humility to inspect their feet, to go back to our first block. Fair? Yeah, and I think it's about giving them the ability to fail. Um, if you devolve leadership, um, no one's going to do everything perfectly first time round. And, of course, most managers are trained to command and control things. So the first time you give 
responsibility to someone down the chain and they mess it up, not surprisingly, the knee-jerk reaction from the way we classically train managers will be to grab it back again and certainly make sure it doesn't happen again. And yet, if we look at ourselves in the mirror, most of our valuable leading, I would argue, has been probably as a result of doing something less than perfect and, and learning from it. Um, so I'm not arguing that devolved leadership is easy, um, but it is important that you allow people to fail um, so, that they, so that they do learn from it. Yeah, there's, um, it reminds me, because this whole notion of experts leading, um, the willingness to fail, to tolerate imperfection, to tolerate slowness, to have a bit of patience as people are learning, is one of the biggest challenges, because you know how to do it so well. But you're never going to get other people engaged, involved, stepping up, creating leverage, any of that stuff, if you don't allow people some room to learn. Right. I want to shift this discussion just a tiny bit. Today I was coaching someone and the comment that comes back from the person that I'm coaching is that he is very hierarchical. If I talk to him, though, he would say I'm not hierarchical at all. What he is, is he has close attention to detail and he wants the detail done right and done well. So any advice on how do you let people underneath you learn, tolerate the failures that's going to inevitably come, um, knowing that it's not going to be as well done as you would like it to be done? Well, I don't think there's a problem, uh, certainly not anything that he should be concerned about or apologize for, for being very clear about what he wants, how he wants something done. Um, you know, going all the way back to the, where we started in the military, um, <laughs> you know, you can make a real mess of something if you attack the wrong hill out of two different hills. Um, so I think preciseness um, and being clear about what you want the end result to be doesn't in itself uh, negate the ability for others to then show some degree of initiative and freedom as to how to get there. Um, so, you know, when I deem hierarchy, I talk about not just being precise about what you want, but then stepping in and making certain it happens in exactly that way by doing ten purposes, you doing it yourself. Um, you know, the person you mentioned isn't, I would argue, necessarily too different away from my style. I think people who would have talked about working with me and for me would say, more often than not, they were pretty clear about what needed to be done, and I might be more precise than some about that, but then I left them to go away and work out how it would be done. Um, so I don't see those things necessarily as contradictory, and I do think when you're devolving responsibility for the first time, you know, having a free-for-all is probably not good. I think it's a staged process, but the, the critical issue is to allow people to believe that they have the right to decide the way of doing things, uh, and they own those, those end results. Okay, so let me then turn, so it's the notion that what you're doing in devolved leadership is you're setting the end state, and then allowing some degrees of freedom for how people get to that end state, and some patience and tolerance for the journey along the way. All right, so now let me ask you this question. How do you let other people step in and do things, have answers, have solutions, and not feel threatened as a leader that you're somehow irrelevant and not needed? (laughs) 
there's probably a book in there somewhere. Um, I think that's the most difficult thing of all. Um, once again, a short anecdote. I worked with a guy once years ago who ran his whole factory on the principle of devolved leadership, uh, all the way down to the packing lines, literally deciding their shift patterns uh, when they ordered material and so on. Um, he will recount the story, though, that about two weeks into uh, allowing this new setup, he asked the health and safety guy to go around and simply pin up some new posters that were mandatory in terms of how the factory was run. So these were standard posters that told you about slipping and falling and one thing and another. Um, two of the people whom he devolved re the responsibility to came into his office extremely upset and asked him, are you serious about devolved leadership? And Joe said, yeah, absolutely. And the lady concerned said, in that case, don't stick posters up in my area of the factory without asking me. All you needed to tell me was that these posters needed to go up, and I'll decide where they go. Um, and I think it can be something as simple as that. Um, Joe is now subsequently retired, but I can't imagine him ever running a factory any differently than the way he ran it, and it was an extraordinarily successful factory. But I think the issue is not so much feeling threatened. The issue is if you can allow people to do what they're good at, it frees you up to do things that maybe add greater value to the organization in terms of freeing up some of your capability. I have a theory. I've had many hours of discussion with people that most organizations of any reasonable size have a middle management that's operating at at least one to two levels below where they should be. We just don't know it. And, you know, unfortunately, more often than not, those people get the opportunity to do that when the company's in crisis and it comes about as a result of headcount reduction. It would be nice to think sometimes that it could be done in a much more positive way. I think some organizations would be extraordinarily surprised about what their middle managers could do, and then it frees up the leaders to, to do other things. I think there'd be a lot of people who would agree with you, particularly at the top of organizations. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. With me today is Peter Wright. We've been talking about the notion of devolved leadership, allowing other people underneath you to do more, to step up, to have an opinion, to even make decisions that might normally have been under your control. When we return, we're going to talk about Peter's view and how you go about developing leadership capability, both to be under crisis as well as to devolve responsibility. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, 
Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. With me today is Peter Wright. We've been talking about Peter's military experience and active duty and his corporate experience through crises, more recently about what it takes for leaders to devolve responsibility. So now what I want to do is to focus on how do you begin to develop the capability that lets you lead through a crisis, should you ever be faced with one, and um, to devolve leadership. So... Peter, I want to start back at the very beginning. For those people who don't know the British military, there is an intensive set of training through an organization called Sandhurst. It's notorious for its leadership capability and leadership training, not unlike West Point's leadership training in the U.S. market. Um, So you had a lot of preparation for leading at Sandhurst, and I know you have a view on how we do and don't do leadership training in the corporate environment. So tell us your view, please. Um, well, I think in part you've answered a part of the question. I think that, in fact, it took a year at Sandhurst, and I, I know it takes um, uh, longer at West Point because they wrap in a degree into it as well, uh, is an answer in its own right. Um, I think leadership is not uh, a two-week program with or without, with or without a, a project bolted into it. Um, I think it's a lifelong commitment. It's a tapestry of experiences. Yes, it involves formal training, obviously, uh, but but aside from Sandhurst, the military actually sends you on some form of refresher on average every two years for the whole of your career. Uh, and I think just the sheer size and scale of the difference of that kind of investment versus the average sort of investment that you get in a corporation speaks for itself. Uh, so I don't think this is about tweaking around the edges. I think it's about a fundamental change in mindset. The other thing I would say is that it, when I left the military and went into uh, corporate life, I was struck by the concentration on functional expertise. Um, so I've often posed this question to audiences. If you have a short list of three candidates and on the left-hand side you have, without doubt, for instance, the best CFO technically, and on the right-hand side you have the third best technically gifted CFO, but without doubt the best leader, which one would you pick? Now, in a military context, I'm fairly safe in in saying that they would pick the leader. I think in corporate life, more often than not, they would pick the functional expert. And my argument would be, and I know not everyone agrees with me, that it's much easier to uh, complement any technical capability that a CFA may, CFO may, may, may lack. Um, after all, uh, financial functions tend to be fairly large. Um, it's a whole lot more difficult to compensate for a lack of leadership. So I think until we get to this point of a more balanced view about the importance of functional expertise versus leadership, um, and we start to invest um, in leadership in a way that those organizations like the military are renowned for, then I think we might improve where we are at the moment. I doubt we will get to the point where uh, senior teams feel comfortable with the type of crises that we're beginning to see now almost on a, a weekly basis. 
So music to my ears, because I think that we spend the first part of our career developing functional expertise and leading as a functional expert. I think you spend the latter part of your career learning to lead in a different way. And so you would agree that some of these other leadership capabilities are the really important ones, particularly when things are not going smoothly. So if you were giving a checklist of the kind of questions you would have a listener um, go through in terms of am I prepared for, have I had this experience, have I done this, am I ready for this, what would be on your bucket list of things to check in a leadership training sense? I think there is no substitute for doing it. So all the way back to this idea of how do you simulate courage. I think it was the Center for Creative Leadership years ago did a study with an organization which was slightly artificial, and they said, they, they, the, the question asked was, what's the one single most influential thing that's affected your career? Uh, and, of course, the reality is it's usually more than one. Um, training came out fifth, which didn't mean it wasn't important, but it put it in context. Uh, challenging assignments came out first. Interestingly, the second one, and challenging assignments in the second one, stood out above all others with serendipity. Uh, the idea that lots of people learn by just being chucked in uh, to a situation, and it wasn't even through formal succession planning. Their boss left unexpectedly or fell ill or a circumstance occurred. Um, and I think if you bear that in mind, that challenging assignments is number one and serendipity is number two because that, you know, whether we like it or not, is a factor in life, um, then it puts training into context. Uh, but at the end of the day, the only way you're going to learn to be a leader is actually be given leadership opportunity. Okay, so that means get yourself out of the comfort zone, doing things that you haven't done before in a breadth of different ways so that you've got the experience of doing a variety of different things. Um, anything else, just in your last sort of minute here for summary, anything else that you would say, just make sure you've had this experience and that experience and some other experience? Um, I think uh, the last point I would argue is probably around this endless discussion around IQ and EQ. Um, I've seldom met a leader that wasn't bright in a pure IQ sense. In fact, I've probably never met a leader that wasn't bright. Um, I've met lots of people masquerading as leaders who lacked EQ, uh, emotional intelligence. Um, and, and I don't necessarily like the way it's been labeled uh, in the way that consultants do it, but I do think uh, awareness, the ability to empathize with others, is a critical issue in terms of, as I sit and reflect on the leaders I've worked for, this ability to recognize their own strengths and weaknesses, to move up and down the social scale, uh, to be able to talk to anyone in an organization irrespective of hierarchy in the same way, is arguably as important, if not, uh, dare I say it, even maybe more important than IQ. Fabulous. Peter, thank you very much. This is Wanda Wallace with Out of the Comfort Zone. We've been talking to Peter Wright about his experiences in leading under fire and through crisis. I think the thing that strikes me the most out of the entire conversation is this notion of humility and vulnerability and bringing a team together and the ways to go about doing that. Next week, we're going to go to a tactical component of this whole notion of getting out of the comfort zone, and we're going to focus on how do you portray confidence even when you don't necessarily feel it in the moment. So join us next week with Elizabeth Kunka. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.